All right, good morning again. Uh, I frequently get to this time where um, uh, Stephen's led us in worship and the band and the vocalists, and uh, I'm ready to go home after that usually and just feel like, wow, that was it. Uh, and then uh, Jim shared, and I really appreciate that, Jim, and I was ready to go home after that. And then Gladys spoke and reminded us about spending, saving, and sharing, and I was, again, ready to go home. I've already been through, uh, uh, spent a few hours with this uh, stuff from... Uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So I'm kind of ready to go, but uh, we're going to dig into it anyway. Uh, let's pray. Help us, God, uh, to be attentive to you, to your word, uh, to your will, to your way, to your person. Uh, we thank you for uh, times of singing in which we get to interact with you and see, hear, know, uh, breathe you in. Uh, we thank you for that grace and for the joy of being able to be a part of that and for messages of truth uh, to children and to adults that overlap and intertwine, uh, continue to build us up. I pray that as my words uh, are true to your word, as we open your word, may they be taken to heart. If my words uh, stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be quickly forgotten and give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are good and fertile soil. Amen. So we are, we are continuing this morning in our journey through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in chapters five, six, and seven of the Gospel of Matthew. I hope you're having a good time learning, picking up some things, some things are settling in. Uh, maybe the pieces are coming together for you in ways that they haven't before, I hope so. This morning we're gonna get to some of the most familiar verses in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, what is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. And of all the prayers uh, with which a person may be familiar, the verses we'll read in the moment, known as the Lord's Prayer, probably the most familiar prayer to you. Even topping uh, good night prayers that we pray with our kids or our parents pray with us, uh, other prayers that we've heard in public spaces. However, these words probably should never have been labeled in history the Lord's Prayer. Jesus' long prayer that makes up chapter 17 in John's gospel, also known as Jesus' high priestly prayer, the high priestly prayer, that prayer, if any prayer in the scriptures, deserves the title of the Lord's Prayer. And what we find here in the Sermon on the Mount may be better named the Lord's Disciples' Prayer or, the, or simply the Disciples' Prayer. What we find in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, probably better uh, because it's about what Jesus is teaching his students, his followers, his apprentices about how to pray. It's for them, not him. Moreover, uh, this way that Jesus taught his disciples to pray was probably not intended to be a rigid or formal or locked in, same every time wrote prayer for Jesus' disciples, but instead a model, a model for prayer. Nor was it intended to be something that we say together, in unison, in public, everybody at once as part of a liturgy, part of a worship service. Rather, what Jesus offers to disciples in the way of guidance for praying was in the context of Jesus' teaching about the importance of practicing these spiritual disciplines. In other words, doing one's righteousness, Jesus talked about in the previous sections, in secret out of the public eye, where or in a way that one, that only God sees, and for an audience of one, as we talked about last week. And this would be a part of the righteousness or the goodness that Jesus said would be far superior to surpass 
the righteousness and the goodness of the most religious people in Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He's about to teach them a different and better way. So what we know about the Lord's Prayer might be better called the Disciples' Prayer. Uh, What Jesus gives to his disciples was not a prayer to recite, but rather a model, a guide, a rubric, general instruction. And then third, what Jesus gave his disciples was not so much for public prayer together, which is how most Christians have understood it and used it over the course of Christendom. What Jesus gave his disciples was not so much for public prayer, but rather for private prayer alone, private practice, as we talked about last week. Doesn't mean it's wrong to pray it together in unison, but it simply isn't what Jesus was talking about or what Jesus necessarily intended. He had more different and better in mind for them. So these are three things worth remembering as we continue reading, studying, absorbing, and being shaped, I hope, by Rabbi Jesus, his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount to which we now return, uh, beginning at chapter six. I'm gonna read verse one, which uh, we talked about last week was kind of an umbrella verse. Jump over to verses five through eight that we read last week and continue with nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Listen closely, this is the word of God through the Son of God, Jesus. He said, be careful not to practice your righteousness, in other words, your good works, your good deeds, in front of others to be seen by them, in order, in other words, to show off or to impress other people. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And at this point in the text, Jesus applies that instruction and warning to three different legitimate and important acts of righteousness, beginning with giving to the needy, then going to praying, which we talked about, we saw last week, and then there'll be a third that comes after this. But then he continued like this in verse five. When you pray, one of those acts of righteousness, don't be like the hypocrites, the pretenders, the actors. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. But then before Jesus goes on to the third act of righteousness or third good deed or third spiritual discipline that he will again say is very important to be done privately, Jesus pauses for this sidebar to teach his disciples, his students, a little more about prayer. He's told them what not to do, what to avoid when praying. Now he will say to them a little bit of what to do when they pray. So continuing at verse nine, here we go. Jesus said, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then there's this tag or this asterisk or this commentary that Jesus adds in verse 14 that pertains to what Jesus had taught about forgiveness and prayer. Verse 14, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sin, your Father will not forgive you. It's not about, it's not part of how Jesus taught his disciples to pray, but it is Jesus' commentary and his clarification on that part of what he did teach 
his disciples was essential in prayer. And some of you may also be wondering, where's that last part of Jesus' teaching on prayer, the part that says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. I think that's how it ends. Where is that part? And the answer is that that was actually never a part of Jesus' final words, never a part of his teaching. Added later, centuries later, by the church, probably because they were awfully uncomfortable with the final words of Jesus' model or rubric or example of prayer ending with the devil, ending with evil. And so they wrote up and tagged on this thing that they thought would be appropriate for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And it ends with crescendo and it ends with praise, which is exactly how Jesus' prayer began. Began, Father in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. And now uh, how to explore Jesus' teaching a little bit further. What Jesus said is important on so many levels. Entire books have been written just about these seven verses they're that important. They could easily take us a six or seven week series on Sunday mornings. I believe that would be fruitful for us. This morning, we've only got a few minutes. I'm gonna zip right through it. We're gonna go verse by verse, buckle up and hang on. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Father wasn't the normal way that God was addressed in prayer. In fact, it was somewhere between rare and unheard of. In some places, Jesus uses the word Abba, a word in Aramaic that was so unique to Jesus in calling out to God as Father that Mark and Paul took the time to transliterate it so that it wouldn't be missed. Abba translates Papa or Daddy. And Jesus invites his disciples into an intimate relationship with him. Jesus used a Father, which he did all the time, and more in Matthew's Gospel than any other book. Matthew's hooked on this, he's caught it, he knows it. It isn't a, an assertion that Jesus was the Son of God, though he was, but rather an acknowledgement of who and how God is and what God is like and his relationship toward us and our relationship with him. Father in heaven, our Father. And so again, if this is an, a prayer that's intended to be for private use, why not say my Father? Because Jesus, in inviting them to pray individually to God, invites them into a family and invites them into other relationships. You pray in private, in secret, so that you know that your heart is pure and that your Father will hear you in heaven. But you know also that you're a part of a family. And in and through Jesus, who is in some ways your brother, you are invited into this family. Our Father who art in heaven, or more literally in the scriptures, in the heavens. In the heavens, plural. Uh, we have historically translated it heaven, but the term is plural, and it applies to the God who's way up there, but also the air, another way of translating that word, that's right here among us. God is not far up. He doesn't live just above our high ceilings, but he lives in here, and he lives in here, and he lives in here. Our Father in the heavens, hallowed be your name. How often do we use the word hallowed in our language? Anyone use the word hallowed this week? Halloween sort of comes close, or it seems to, but there, where's the connection there? Hallowed comes from a Greek word that's uh, hagios, that's in other places translated holy or set apart. And it calls us to uh, acknowledge that God is completely different than we are 
that he is unique, that he is higher, that he is above us in every way. And his name, which represents his person, his character, his personality, his nature, himself, a person's self was their name, an odd, we sang about it in that third song, an odd use of the word name, but it represented, and Jesus says, Father in the heavens, Father of us, hallowed, set apart, holy, unique, may your name, your person, who you are, be acknowledged to be and professed. And if we had to come up with one English word, William Barclay, the uh, English commentator wrote, one word that encapsulates in our common English language all that Jesus is saying here with hallowed, it is the word reverence. May we hold God in highest reverence and may we begin our prayers this way. If we were to make one change, if you were make, to make one tweak in your prayer life because of what we're reading here this morning, just one tweak, one new thing, one thing you learn, one thing you will to do differently, it would be to begin every time you pray with praise to God. May your name be highly revered. May you be worshiped. May you be honored. How many of us start our praying in that way on a regular basis? But what if we did? That's our starting point. That was Jesus' start. That's the starting point of all of this, recognizing who God is and giving him honor, speaking praise, which isn't often a part of much of our prayer when we're young. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let God's name be treated differently from all other names. Let God's name be given a position in which it is holy, 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 and wholly unique. The verb leaves it unclear whether God or humans are to sanctify that name. It was the theologian Karl Barth who most forcefully insisted that the idea so dear to many Christians of building the kingdom of God on earth is an expression of bad theology. He says, which we'll look at later, the biblical writers make it clear that only God can bring about his kingdom. Similarly, are we asking God here to sanctify his holy name, to bring honor, or, or are we telling God that he is holy and it actually doesn't matter? And both can be valid translations. Either way, God bring glory to yourself or God, we glorify you. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And to understand this, we have to understand what Jesus meant when he talked about the kingdom, or the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of the heavens. And we talk about this periodically. I decided to rewind and get our, uh, to a message, a series of messages almost two years ago that we did about the kingdom of God. Someone asked me about that recently and asked me to pull that up, so I dragged it up. Here we go. Jesus talked more about the kingdom of God than anything else, and it's right here in the Lord's Prayer, which we probably often just scroll through when we're saying it. But from the notes from those sermons, these things, the kingdom of God is not Israel, the United States, the church, a physical or geographic realm, a strictly future reality. Do you remember this? Conversely, the kingdom of God is the authority of God to reign, the rule of God in people's lives, the reality in which what God wills is done, God's reigning over or God's rule over people, 
And then finally, it's all about the king. Dallas Willard talks about the kingdom of God is the realm or the reality in which what God wills is done. We talk about God's will as if whatever comes to happen is God's will. Not so in the scriptures. God's will is what God desires, what God wants, what God seeks, what God hopes for, what God intends. That is what God wills. And so William Barclay, again, I almost said Charles Barclay. <laughs> William Barclay. The kingdom of God is a society upon earth where God's will is perfectly done as it is in heaven. To be in the kingdom of God is to obey the will of God. Immediately we see that the kingdom is not something which primarily has to do with nations and people and countries. It is something which has to do with each one of us. The kingdom is in fact the most personal thing in the world. It is only when one, one of us makes his personal decision and submission that the kingdom comes. To pray for the kingdom of heaven is to pray that we may submit our wills entirely to the will of God. Where is the kingdom of God? Is it up there? Is it over there? Is it out there? No. It's in here. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Sure, out there, but always in here. It is a pledge. It is a commitment. It is an expressed desire to do what God intends, the good that God intends. They had seen it breaking forth in other people's lives early in Jesus' ministry. They had seen it breaking forth, not by the will of other people, but because Jesus was there doing, inviting, interacting, bringing about. Give us today our daily bread. What bread was Jesus talking about, the Bible scholars have wondered. Communion, the word of God, sometimes called bread of life. Jesus himself, a future kingdom, some eschatological reality. There are lots of different ideas about what sort of bread Jesus may have been referring to. The word translated here daily is epiousios, hard for me to say, which doesn't occur anywhere else in Greek literature, not in the Bible, not in any other Greek literature, it had no other record. And so they thought, is that an accident? Did Matthew make up that word? Until not too long ago, on a papyrus, they found the same word. And it came in the context of someone's shopping list. Their grocery list that they were looking for and preparing for things for the next day's food. And so it very much refers to the tangible things that we eat, that we need for our bodies, for who we are, for daily life. Give us this day our daily bread. And notice, again, not just me and my, give me bread, satisfy my hunger, and not just my kids or what I'll feed the husband when he comes home from work or the wife in our day, but give to us, and the vision is much bigger because we have already prayed for God's will to be done all over the earth. So how do we pray this when we have way more than we need stored in refrigerators and pantries, and yet there are people 
who don't have anything today or tomorrow. We must look at Jesus' words in that way and say as we pray collectively, not just for ourselves, give me my bread, which God cares about, but give us today our daily bread for all of us who are a part of your family. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. God's always ready to forgive, and God is always forgiving. It's not something that God hangs over us or with which he teases us. He promises forgiveness in, through, and by Jesus. But along with that, God calls us to acknowledge our need for forgiveness. This part of Jesus' teaching on prayer is a call and an invitation and a radical one to honesty and to truthfulness and to truth and to reflection on our own lives, who we are, what we've done, who we've been. It's hard to read through the Lord's Prayer or to recite it with our heads bowed at the pace we normally do and have time for any of this. Forgiveness is not unconditional. Praying the Lord's Prayer invites and even assumes repentance on the part of the recipient, on the part of the one who prays. Psalm 103 is really beautiful, and it lists all the benefits of God, all of his graciousness, all the ways that he's good. And at the top of that list is his forgiveness. Psalm 133. Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. A, le- a weird word. Uh, someone once said that Presbyterians love money and Episcopalians love property, and that's why the Episcopalians pray, forgive us our trespasses, and Presbyterians pray, forgive us our debts. It's not really true. There are five Greek words in the New Testament used for or that are translated in some way or another as sin. And this one in particular refers to debt specifically, to debts that have owed, to debts we should have paid, to debts we owe to other people, to society, to one another, to ourselves. And so it simply has a financial element, but it very much implies sin. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It is unrealistic to pray, let me Forgive other people, and oh how easy it is to not do this, to move through this prayer without slowing down to understand these words, which literally mean forgive our sins in proportion to or as we forgive those who have sinned against us. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus says in the plainest possible language that if we forgive others, God will forgive us, but if we refuse to forgive others, God refuses, will refuse to forgive us. Sobering words. Our forgiveness of our fellow people and God's forgiveness of us cannot be separated according to Jesus. They are interlinked, interdependent, interconnected. Have you seen that before? If we remember what we were doing when we take this petition on our lips, there would be times when we would not dare to pray it. 
We would get stuck if we were being honest and wanted to be truthful and take Jesus' prayer seriously. We would go through the Lord's Prayer with everyone and then just have to stop. Because we know when we're being honest that we're not forgiving other people, that we're not willing to forgive, that there's someone we don't want to forgive very intentionally. Jesus won't allow us to pray this prayer without our full participation and will. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those indebted to us. And oh, how easily we have prayed those words when in reality they should be maybe the most difficult words of this prayer or of our praying. Every time we pray them, we should pause and reflect. We so struggle to forgive others and especially in the way that God forgives us that these words should trouble us. They should challenge us. They should compel us. They should convict us. They should lead us ultimately then to the healing of our souls, to the reconciliation of our relationships. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive them. Lord, have mercy. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's unrealistic to pray, let me not be tempted. When temptation itself is a part of the freedom God has gifted us with. And the man Jesus himself experienced temptation. The word temptation and test are the same word in Greek, just it's only the context where they're translated differently. And you remember that it was God, Holy Spirit, who sent Jesus into the wilderness to be not tempted, but tested through which he, God's, God would be glorified and Jesus would be strengthened and truth would be declared. It's part of the human condition. To be human is to have temptation daily. Many temptations having been dealt with no longer exercise any real power over us, but others remain troublesome throughout many of our lives. And there are unanticipated temptations. They catch us off guard. They find us when we're vulnerable. It's probably, therefore, the way most Christians have understood this petition, while intention with its surface meaning is nonetheless correct to pray or to think, grant me strength to resist temptation, God. Grant me strength to resist temptation. We're reading the book of James. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed, James wrote, in the freedom that God has given us. And so these are just a few ways of thinking about Jesus' words that for probably most of our lives we've said in church on Sundays when the pastor or someone else has walked us through it, but not given us the time to listen and to ingest and to practice and to go one-on-one -on -one with God and to make all of this personal, which is what God desires. For there to be space in our lives for his kingdom to come upon us and in us and eventually through us, but it takes slowing down in a high-speed world. And so, uh, back where we began at the latter part of chapter four, Jesus says, and it all makes sense now, repent. Change your mind, think again, reconsider. Think differently about all of this because the kingdom of heaven 
or the kingdom of the heavens or the kingdom of God is there, near, right there with you, accessible and available. And this is just one of those ways. Repent, think differently about what Jesus is teaching. Repent, change your mind about the way that you pray. Change your mind about the God who listens and longs and wants and cares and loves. Repent, for the kingdom of God is so near. The reign, the rule, and the dominion of God are right next door and available. So those three things, what we've known as the Lord's Prayer ought to better be known as the disciples' prayer. What Jesus gave his disciples was not a prayer to recite, but a model of prayer to guide us. And what Jesus gave his disciples was not so much for public prayer, though it may have been eventually, and it has been. And it could have been early on integrated into the liturgy of the corporate worship of the people of God in Jesus. But it wasn't so much for public prayer as it is and has been intended to be for our private prayer, for our private conversations with God, in order to open them up, in order to free them up, in order to deepen them in ways we never could have imagined. And so it's not enough just to learn about prayer. We must practice prayer. Prayer is where change begins. Prayer is where change happens. And in prayer and while praying, we should be less concerned with changing God's mind and more concerned in prayer with God, with allowing God to change our minds. Again, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is so near. It is so near and available, and Jesus invites us into prayer. So what we're going to do for a few minutes is to try to put into practice individually, in secret, together though, some of the things we've talked about, learned, and seen in Jesus' prayer. So we're going to have a few minutes of silence, and you kind of think, silence? I could have had silence at home. Why am I here? But hope you can consider silence a gift and a chance to process and listen and think and actually pray according to the ways we've taught, the things we've seen in Jesus' words, to begin to practice what hopefully will become a, a part of our daily routines and a regular part of our lives. So we're just going to kind of shut things down for a, a few minutes and allow you to think, pray, uh, go over some of those things. Again, say the Lord's Prayer in your mind and stop when you have to stop and do some work there in the silence with God. Confess some things, ask some things, listen in a different way. I'm going to put on the screen three paraphrases of the Lord's Prayer by three different people first uh, Dale Bruner, and then Dallas Willard, and then Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase of the Bible called The Message that are there not that you have to read, but are there as maybe helps and prompts for you as you pray, as you listen, as you practice this at your own pace. So we're going to do that for a couple of minutes. Um, use this time however you'd like. I encourage you to think back about what we've talked about, to go through the Lord's Prayer in your mind, to pray those things as God leads, to be open to God's spirit. Those paraphrases will be on the screen if you, if you need help or kind of prompting along the way. Let us pray. May these things be so, bring them about 
Amen, amen, amen.